Can you share your reasoning for moving to Los Angeles to become a filmmaker? I was in college in Chicago, and at the time I thought I was going to be uh, like either an English professor or a film studies professor, that's what I was studying, and then the film club at University of Chicago, they acquired like a clunky old video camera. And I picked up that video camera and I checked it out and I went and shot my first film, and simultaneously I knew it was both terrible and that I didn't want to do anything else but make films. And so uh, at the time, honestly, like I didn't know how to do anything separate from going to school. And I was like, if I want to be a filmmaker, I guess I'll go to school to be a filmmaker. And I applied to the UCLA film program and got in, and that's what brought me out here. And I'm not really thankful about that. I don't know that the, my sort of 22-year-old self would have just made the classic just leap and move to LA. And so going to film school was really my like pull to Los Angeles to show up here and start this journey. How was that for you when you showed up? Because if you were used to Chicago winters, and I know there's a difference, East Coast mindset versus West Coast. How did you feel when you showed up here? I would say it took me a while to adjust to Los Angeles for many reasons. It's just a very different place. But really at the time, I think the city was much less on my mind. It was more I was, you know, I, got, I showed up at grad school and it was 24-7 thinking about movies. And that was just wonderful. Like that was really, it's one of the most memorable times of my entire life. And so when I think about my arrival to LA, I can't separate it from, it was the time when I fully said out loud this crazy idea, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Uh, and I dropped into UCLA and I met, uh, you know, I met lifelong friends, I met my wife, uh, and really, uh, yeah, just sort of confirmed my like, hope that this is something I wanted to do. Do you remember what movie was popular at the time? Oh boy, um, let's see, what were the big ones? You know, I don't know what was popular, but I know that uh, I had seen a series of movies in the, in the few years leading up to that time that had pushed me towards uh, uh, making films. And they're very different. One of them was uh, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Uh, I love Terrence Malick, especially early Malick. Um, and then uh, The Matrix had come up relatively uh, close to that time. And as far apart as those two movies are, they were both movies that when I sat in the theater and saw them, I was just blown away and uh, just moved on a like emotional level, a visual level, uh, and I knew like, yeah, like, I wanna do that. From listening to other interviews with you, you said you grew up exposed to two very different cultures, and I was wondering how does that shape your problem solving, whether it's on set or even in life? I'm a mixed race American, so my dad is this Muslim immigrant from Bangladesh, and my mom is, uh, she grew up in New England, she's a you know, Spanish, Italian, white girl, and that really meant that in my household, like one of our guiding principles was, there's always more than one way to do things. You know, we celebrated Christmas and Eid. At Thanksgiving, we had turkey and turkey biryani. But for sure, yeah, it has meant that in almost every situation when I'm making an artistic choice or a logistical choice, I think just very naturally, I think, there are different perspectives. I need to think about all the different ways to even ask the question in front of us, let alone find a solution. Did you feel a pressure to abandon your art or creativity? I mean, was going to LA to become a filmmaker something that was embraced? I grew up in a house that loved movies. My parents took me to see art house films, blockbuster films. We rented, you know, everything we could get out of blockbuster. My my Bangladeshi relatives had VHS tapes that were being sent from India, Bollywood films. Uh, so no, uh, if anything, I think my parents were maybe more excited about me being a filmmaker than I was at times. Like I think everyone kept saying to me, like I think you should do this. Like you're the one who, whenever we go see a movie. We spent an hour talking about you know, camera choices and what the actors did. Uh, so I often joke that I think my friends and family realized I was gonna be a filmmaker before I did. What makes a great story? 
I think there are a lot of different kinds of great stories. For me, a great story uh, evokes emotion. And it doesn't have to be positive emotion, just to, I think to viscerally evoke emotion uh, is the first part of it. I think I also want a story to feel like it has purpose. And I don't think that means it has to have a moral or that it has to have a particular structure, but I wanna feel like I'm in the hands of a storyteller who has a plan. And I'm excited to see what their plan is. One of the things I love about stories is that I think that they're a way of seeing how other people think and feel. And if I can sit down and read something or watch something and go on a journey through someone else's mind and their point of view and their just feelings about life or the world or whatever it is, uh, I'm satisfied. Do you remember the first film you saw as a child in the cinema, like a blockbuster film and then at some point an art house cinema film? And how did each one leave you afterward? The very first movie I saw in the theater was E.T. And you know that was at a time I wasn't consciously thinking about the filmmaking process, but the movie just made such an impression on me. And for reasons that I can't explain, uh, but my parents report, uh, when we walked out of the theater, I said, I wanna be a filmmaker, I wanna be a director. Uh, and at the time they said, that's not someone who watches movies, that's someone who makes movies, do you know that? And apparently I said, no, no, I know. I then promptly forgot about that for years and I didn't actually aspire to be a filmmaker until much later, but E.T., like just the magic of that movie really struck me. And then when I was in high school, uh, I saw uh, Paris, Texas. And just seeing an indie film that was both gritty and lyrical and had sort of elliptical storytelling and was ambiguous at times, that really sort of hit me hard realizing, wow, like film can be this like purely emotional art form that is not just about plot or about cool moments of action or this and that, that it can be an exploration of like profound questions about life and it can just be a visceral experience. And, and that's really, I think that's really those two things, like the love of the power of the blockbuster, but also the interestingness of like art house cinema, both of those remain very important to me today. And maybe too, some of the unanswered questions, because I feel like with a lot of Hollywood films, they kind of want to tie up the ending for you, so everything's safe and neat and clean. I love films that ask, prompt more questions than answers. I think you can obviously go overboard. You can make a film that is just so incomprehensible that I think you lose your audience, but for me, the films that I love the most, that stay with me the most, are the ones that make me ask big questions about what happened, what the meaning of things is, but hopefully those questions are like actually expanding out into my life and making me ask questions about life itself. When you say so ambiguous that you lose your audience, I mean, is it, is it something that's just like this experimental, like Swedish film that like, we don't totally, but it's, it, it's very beautifully done or something? I mean, like what? I think that as long as, as a filmmaker, as long as you are consciously being ambiguous, you're probably in good shape. I think that sometimes the only mistake can be uh, when, you, when I'm watching a film and I feel like, is this unclear on purpose? Or is this a failing of the film? And to me, it's like once you verge over to, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be in a gray area or not, that's when I get lost. I'm not sure exactly what you do with your students in terms of the curriculum and what they're turning into you, but do you see that from, from not just your students, but other filmmakers online where you feel like they were trying to be unclear and whether it works or not? Uh, you know, I think that 
actually like most like uh, the vast majority of filmmaking these days, because it's so heavily influenced by blockbuster culture, actually just leans towards clarity. And I don't think there's anything wrong with clarity. I think in some ways, like the beauty of clarity is that it creates a result in the way you wanted it to. So more often than not, I'm actually pushing my students though in an attempt to sort of diversify cinema to contemplate, but maybe there is a value to an open-ended question. Maybe there is a value to at some points the audience not quite understanding what's happening even if it's just to have the reward of then figuring it out. So I feel like I more push them that way than have to sort of rein them back from ambiguity. Do you see them trying to emulate certain directors? I know, you know, Generation X, they wanted to be Robert Rodriguez or mm -hmm. whatever. And I still see people that are, you know, Gen Z saying the same thing. But do you see, do you see certain people they're trying to emulate all the time? I think so many of us come to movies to become, we come to becoming filmmakers because we loved certain filmmakers. And I do think it's just a natural part of the artistic process to, whether you're doing it consciously or not, evoke some of the vernacular, some of the tropes of the filmmakers you love. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing uh, because I think that's actually usually a route towards eventually finding your own voice. You know, if you look at someone like Tarantino, probably one of the most emulated filmmakers, he himself is so in love with certain kinds of movies, but his entire voice is based on taking those films and adding his twists. So I actually, yeah, I, I think that I encourage my students, if they like something, to play in that and to figure out how to make it their own. I think that's really what leads to finding your own voice. How did you learn to be a film director? I started my like filmmaking sort of adventure entirely self-taught in the sense that I just got my hands on a video camera that my college film club happened to have and I reverse engineered how to make a movie. I knew I had seen movies, and I just took a guess at how they must produce the footage that led to that. And so for my first year of making movies, I didn't have any formal education. I didn't even have books on filmmaking. It was sort of prior to the real explosion in blogs and, and YouTube channels and books about all that sort of stuff. After that year, uh, then I went to film school. And for me, film school was a great experience. Uh, I went to grad film school, and so it was this like amazing three, four year period of my life where I just had the privilege of thinking almost exclusively about the process of making movies. And that meant learning production and logistical things, how to schedule a movie and how to budget it, but it also meant learning an artistic process uh, and hearing from different artists about that. And so I think I'm glad that I started my exploration without any formal structure, because it let me just learn some things without some previous assumptions that other teachers or, or guides might have. But then I was also glad to have a series of people who were pretty experienced give me their point of view on, on filmmaking as well. You said your father was an architect? Yeah. So did you sort of instinctually look at things in, in almost a similar way, the way he approached problem solving? Looking back, my father and I actually had this conversation now where we realized I think there is actually a lot of similarity between architecture and film. I think they are both concerned with time and space in a certain way. Uh, and they are both art forms where the idea is not the completion of the art form. You can imagine a building and you can imagine a film, but the art form is not complete unless it can actually be realized. And so I think that sort of a combination of the logistics necessary to make a thing and your artistic desire for what you want it to be, the way they intersect and can conflict or sometimes be complementary. There's a lot of similarities, I think, between those two. So uh, I don't know if that's why I became a filmmaker, but I think certainly I'm interested in the fact that he's an architect and I'm a filmmaker. 
Do, do you see that with your students at all in terms of they approach it from just one side when you try to show them sort of both sides of, of not just, you know, maybe they get so focused in one area. Oh, they just want to have, you know, this line of dialogue and it's going to be really funny and bam, 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 all these great funny lines, but they're, they're missing the big picture. I find that most of my students come into the classroom uh, out of the love of something they really like and interested to sort of do something like that. Uh, but I don't actually know that they've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about how any of it is made. Uh, and so I don't think they come with any particular biases. I think they actually come pretty open to learning about that. We see so much media now that they are very versed in all different kinds of styles and tones and aesthetics, and they can tell you what they like. Uh, and so I spend most of my time focusing on two things, teaching the nuts and bolts skills to actually get the images to look like you want, and uh, pushing them to be rigorous in how they think about story and tone and style for their own work. Why did you write After We Leave? After We Leave is inspired by a couple of different inspiration points that sort of all converged together. The first one was a very just out of the blue sort of uh, brainstorm moment. I was sitting in traffic on Wilshire Boulevard at a stoplight. I can still, I can picture the exact stoplight I was sitting at and a face just appeared in my mind and it was a man and he was looking and I just knew implicitly this is a man looking at his wife in the distance and a question came to me which was, has he changed? And I didn't even know what that question meant but I just knew that it, like, I felt it in some deep emotional way. And it started me on this journey about asking who this character was. And when I started thinking about what it means for a character to change, it made me realize that I had a certain frustration uh, with a lot of mainstream filmmaking, which is about really deeply flawed characters who undergo a remarkable change and get a big reward for it. And I had a lot of questions about that, I realized. Like, do people really change that much? And do characters like that deserve rewards? Like what is the implication of those kinds of stories? And it set me on a path to developing the character for this movie, uh, which I do think of as being a meditation a little bit on how much people can change and what they get for that change. And the limits of like what a certain kind of sort of white male protagonist uh, can achieve contrary to what I think is sort of a dominant form in Hollywood storytelling. When did you begin writing the script? I wrote the movie, I always say, when Obama was still president and people thought it was a pessimistic take on the future. And having now gone through production and releasing it in our current political era, I think it's actually now sadly more prescient. Uh, but the truth was when I was writing it, I was thinking about big trends in the world and what the future might look like. I mean, that's one of the beauties of science fiction is that it can be this way to reflect on the present in a different way. And it doesn't always have to be negative. I know it was at Ursula K. Le Guin would, would, would speak of that. It doesn't always have to be gloom and doom. And, and Yeah, and the truth is I don't, think about the, uh, I don't think about the film as being negative. I more think about it asking questions about the implications of certain trends now and where they will go. In some ways, like I actually don't think of the film as being pessimistic or optimistic. It's more a thought experiment of what if, what would happen, and less about putting a judgment on that and more just exploring what might occur. Sure. And so the notion of change and if people can change and if they do, what's the purpose? What, why does that intrigue you? I think that it intrigues me because uh, of the maybe the potential gap between real life and the stories we tell. Our stories are almost exclusively built around a single protagonist changing. 
And my movie is about that too. Uh, but I was fascinated in, in saying, but is there a different version of that story that I can tell that I think evokes a little more of my own personal feelings about actual real life? Uh, I'm not a pessimist. I don't think no one can change. But I do think that human change is a strange thing. And sometimes, you know, we, we change just enough to know the limits of ourselves. Uh, and I wanted to make a movie about that. Sure. Or maybe we can change what we do, like actions or, or who, who we surround ourselves with, but our, our general core is the same. You know? Absolutely, and I think that's a, a very interesting question to ask is uh, how we judge and think about uh, a change in one's actions versus the change inside one's head and whether that matters or, you know, or whether that's enough. You're sitting in traffic, Wilshire Boulevard. I'm sure it was a lovely uh, <laughs> LA uh, intersection with lots of uh, commotion. Was this your first feature script that you were planning to write or had you written prior feature scripts? I had written many feature scripts. Most of them I had written uh, right after I got out of film school, largely with an eye towards trying to sell them or get them set up uh, to be produced sort of within the studio system. Uh, a few of which I even liked. I mean, I, I, some of them I'm glad I wrote just because I think you need to write a certain number of bad scripts just to get to uh, a better script. Uh, but yeah, I had been writing a lot and with the few things that I had that had been well received, I was still running up against the roadblock of people saying, this, this is a potentially a makeable script, but not with you as a director. You've never directed a feature. Um, no one's gonna take that risk. Uh, and so really, After We Leave was my answer to that recurring complaint. I was like, fine, if that's the case, I'm just gonna go and make my own movie and get that one excuse out of the way. I will, I will be a feature filmmaker uh, by making my own film and then I can hopefully return to trying to get some of these bigger budget things off the ground. And these were producers that you were pitching that were saying that? Producers, agents, um, you know, just uh, I think, and never by the way in a mean way. You know, I think uh, appreciative of the, the sort of work that I was trying to do and interested in the stories I wanted to tell. Uh, but just being frank about just the reality of who they were going to entrust X dollars with and that it would be a, a hard fight for someone who hadn't made a feature, which of course is sort of a, a catch-22, right? You know, like we, we talk a lot about access to the industry and if the access point is how come you haven't already made something, we get caught in this vicious circle, right? Uh, and so I just wanted to break out of that. And for me, the solution was just making a very small budgeted film uh, that I could direct and craft in the way I wanted uh, which again, I did primarily just as a form of self-expression. You know, I made the movie not as a career calling card primarily, not as a strategic move in Hollywood. I made it because I just wanted to tell that story. Uh, I think the benefit is it now makes me a director uh, in a lot more people's eyes and it has opened more doors, but that wasn't really my, my main reason for doing it. Speaking of, of access, I know this is taking a little bit of a, we're diverging a little bit, but um, what, what are some of the misconceptions, whether they're from students or, or just other people in the industry about access and, and what have you seen from going through this process, being told this yourself, that you can't do it? I think if we're specifically talking about feature films, I think the biggest problem with access is just that the business entirely has changed since uh, you know, a lot of us fell in love with movies. There just are so many fewer smaller movies being made by the studios and the big production companies that I actually just think opportunities for newer directors or less experienced directors just aren't even there. I actually think that the, a lot of that access problem is just they're not in the business of making those movies that they used to give to a younger director. They're just making these huge movies. 
That being said, I definitely think for sure that the overall industry has biases against, uh, and they're structural biases, right? They're biases that come not from necessarily bad intentions, but there are barriers to women, to people of color, for sure. The, I think the hope, right, is that uh, there's an antidote to that, which is, well, we can now make our own content. And I do think that that is a valid idea, that, that the way around the access problem is to make stuff. But I think the funny thing these days is, I don't know that the model anymore is make a low budget film so that you can then jump up to a, you know, a lower mid budget studio movie, because those don't even exist. You know, I, I think that really, uh, I've sort of rethought how I think about my career. I'm just gonna keep making movies. Like, I actually don't expect there to be this moment when all of a sudden, now I don't have to self-produce or, or at least, you know, partially self-produce my own movies. Because I don't know that those that that path exists anymore. I really think of making these films like I want to make these movies and I'll make them. The career of directing movies in Hollywood, there's so few films made these days. If you really think about it, that I don't know that that's a path that one sort of incrementally gets to. Sometimes you make a film good enough on your own that you get that lightning strike and you can level up that big way. But I don't think there's any more incremental steps to those big movies anymore because I think there's nothing in between. So when your students come to you with questions about, um, you know, access, are you just telling them that the same thing, basically, just don't try to, like, make something just so you can get to that next level so that someone will, quote, endorse you? I mean, the very first thing that we talk about uh, at Oxy is that the skills involved with filmmaking and with media making, we don't think of those as skills that are exclusively for Hollywood. Uh, I think we live in a world where the ability to tell your story and express yourself visually is something that everyone needs to do. Individuals, companies, nonprofits, governments, cultural institutions, all of them need to do that. And so I think of this toolbox artistically and logistically that we're giving people in the classroom as applying to a huge amount of life. When we talk specifically about access to Hollywood, I do tell people, I was like, I don't think that independent, uh, so I don't think that film director is a career. I think film director is an aspiration. I think independent film director is a calling, or I wish I had a better word than hobby, because I don't think it's a hobby. But I don't actually think it's a career path. I think it is a thing one does because you're compelled to do it. But if you really, if you were to corner even who you think of as successful independent directors and ask them, did you pay your mortgage with filmmaking income this year? So many of them will say no. And that's just the reality. And that's not a reason to stop making movies. It's a reason to ask yourself, why am I making movies? Uh, if you are making movies because you just feel compelled to do it, that's the right answer. When should a screenwriter introduce conflict in the screenplay? I think conflict needs to emerge organically at first. Oftentimes when I'm brainstorming writing a script, I try to avoid actually thinking about like the classic sort of markers of structure that we think of, whether it's three act or five act or the story circle or save the cat, any of those things. For me, I just want to know as I'm getting to know the characters, and as I'm shaping the characters, I do think that I'm consciously shaping those characters, not just letting them emerge sort of from some you know, ethereal muse. Uh, how are the characters different from each other? How do they see the world different from each other? And how does that create conflict? And then how do the characters and their war and the environment, the society themselves, how do they clash? And I think that there's no timetable for that. I think that there are some movies where there's conflict in the very first shot that are masterpieces. And there are some where if we're gonna use a classic definition of conflict, we're 20 minutes in before we realize what the conflict is. 
I definitely don't believe in any sort of timing formula. What I do think is you can feel artificially forced conflict. Oh, I just needed to have you know, these two you know, oppose each other in this scene or that sort of thing. Uh, for me, like, I'm just much more interested in asking what is the journey the character's on uh, and what sort of, um, yeah, when do they react and when do they sort of come up against an oppositional force and when do they have trouble? And that's usually, you know, emerges from them, not a particular sort of preset timing. And how do you continue conflict? Uh, you know how they just say, like, punish your characters, make it just horrible for them. How do you continue conflict without, like you said, being, it, having it be overdone? Yeah. I, I think the core of your idea, you, you can, the, the test of a good idea, I think, is does the journey the character is set, up out from, set on from the beginning, does it have enough sort of, you know, uh, turns of the wheel to evolve the, the problems that they encounter? Uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of times, the difference to me between a short film and a feature film is, is the central conflict something that can be expressed in a single moment, and that's kind of the extent of that idea, or is it an evolving topic? What were some of the biggest writing mistakes you made in the beginning of your screenplay writing, and how did you realize they were mistakes? I think the, let me think about that for a second. It's a good question. What are the mistakes I made? I made all sorts of mistakes when I was starting to write. Uh, but you know, I think I don't necessarily think of them as mistakes and more just like, I think it's just the process of learning, you know? And, and I'm happy that I, that I was able to, you know, have the time to, to just keep writing and writing and writing. Things that jump to mind when I think about like my particular early mistakes. I think one, I was a little scared of trusting my own point of view. I think I was relying too much on the models of screenwriting, you know, looking at books on the hero's journey and three-act structure and, and you know, now, you know, some of the more evolved. So I, I was just, I was obsessed with those things. I was trying to find an answer in them. And at the end of the day, like, I do think that they have some use, but no, for me, I realized when I just let go of that and just ask myself, like, just core emotional and dramatic questions, first of all, actually, sometimes it would result in stuff that actually had that structure anyways inherent in it. And even when it didn't, it still worked. So definitely, like, the uh, sort of avoiding the structure. I think, honestly, also uh, not uh, outlining and spending enough time planning. There's such a temptation to feel like you're not getting anything done until you type on the page. And I feel like if anything, what I've learned in every time I write a screenplay, I think I now spend longer in the brainstorming and then outlining phase each time. Realizing that it's so easy to think, I just typed a scene, like that means I made progress. But if it's not the right scene, not the right entry into that scene, not the right characters, not the right time, that time doesn't really get me anywhere. And so I'm really trying to like, and it's hard to do that. It's hard to stay in the brainstorming phase because it can feel like, oh my God, I'm not making progress. Quite literally, like we use page count as like our metric of progress. I wrote five pages today. Uh, and I do think that that is, I think in some ways like destructive to the creativity. Like sitting, there are times which I've sat for an hour staring out the window and had no good thought until the final two minutes, but that one idea was so good, shapes the whole film, that that hour, that the 58 minutes where I didn't think of anything was worth that two minutes. Those two minutes might be worth weeks of writing just to have that right sort of you know, brainstorm. So for sure, I think I rushed too quickly into writing pages uh, was another mistake I made. And then lastly, I really do believe, it's related to outlining, I don't think you should start writing the movie until you know the end. Uh, I think the end of a movie is so important because it should inform everything that comes before it. I think it's, in some ways, no matter whether you're making a super clear movie or someone in a biggest movie, whatever the ending is, it's, you know, in, in the classic setup of like a joke, if that's the punchline, the setup has to be right for it. 
And I think writing any pages before you know where that's coming is a mistake. Even if your ending is open-ended, I think you need to know you're leading to that. And so until I know the end, I won't start writing. How do you finish a screenplay? It seems like so many people have these great ideas and yeah, I'm gonna get right to it and they tell everybody about it. But then months go by, they're at a blockage. I know you said possibly yeah. knowing the ending. I think it's hard to finish a screenplay. I really do. Uh, I think it's hard to write. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, I know so many different writers and filmmakers, people I went to school with, people I've met in the industry. And honestly, when you ask them candidly, I haven't heard any of them tell me it's easy to finish a screenplay. For me, uh, this screenplay in particular for After We Leave was a, a different process. I knew that I wanted to experiment with improvisation uh, and sort of bring a sort of American indie, uh, a little bit of mumblecore uh, to sci-fi. And so I had parts of the screenplay that I knew I was never gonna finish, that I had a setup, I knew the stakes of the scene, I knew where it was gonna begin, where it was gonna end, but I actually left some parts of the screenplay totally open. And that was for two reasons. One, I was just interested in sort of loosening up my artistic process, uh, but also I wanted to um, just try and experiment and sort of see where this story could go. So in some ways, I don't know if the screenplay ever was finished until we finished shooting. And so when you presented um, the, the script to your actors, they were fully aware that they would really need to know your, their character. Absolutely. You know, most of the actors on the film were people I'd worked with before. Uh, and even when they weren't, you know, I would start with a conversation about the process of the film, that we were going to make a film that was improvisatory, that was experimental. We, were, we might go out some days and get one shot, and it might be it. We might go out and shoot a whole scene and be like, eh, I don't know if I like that, let's try it again. The idea was we were keeping our costs so low that we never had to make a decision based on money. That we could make, what's the coolest thing we could do, the risky thing, and part of that was improvisation with the actors. I've been on set a number of times in other contexts where an actor had a, like, a completely different idea about the character in that scene. And when money is on the line and time is tight, you're just so inclined to not sort of engage with that idea you're like, I don't know, we're under pressure on budget. I better just do the safe thing. Shoot it safely and do exactly what the script said. But when you're free, when you've adopted a model where there's less money being spent, you're shooting you know, on a different timetable, you can embrace that. You can be like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Let's try it, let's do it. And so most of the actors were very excited about that idea. Uh, I, I made a series of promises to my collaborators, sort of giving them a little more freedom on this movie. And to the actors, I always said, you can always have one more take. You know, like my promise to you is I have an idea for what I want, a very specific idea. You know, I didn't abandon my directorial voice. I wrote some of the scenes, you know, pretty explicitly. I knew what I wanted from the scenes, but then we always tried things that they had in mind. And some of those things are in the film, you know, and are better than the ideas that I had. So they were really open and excited about imp improvising. Would you say you're a planner by nature? You seem pretty organized. I am a planner by nature. You know, um, the joke about me in film school was that when I showed up my first set, I had craft service in two boxes divided <laughs> by salty and sweet. I've never lived down salty and sweet. And this movie actually was a very, very conscious attempt to shake that up a little bit. I used to be the kind of filmmaker who would storyboard every single frame. And I can tell you this story. I remember showing up to the set of a web series I was directing. I got there in the morning and I said, I know every single shot I'm gonna get and what it's gonna look like. And at first I was happy about that. And I came home that night and I had indeed gotten exactly the shots I had imagined and they were how I wanted them to be. And I literally almost cried because I realized like I did not come to LA. I did not like 
do this crazy thing to execute a shot list on time, to get competent coverage that basically covered the story. Like, and, I, and so I made a vow to myself, like I was never gonna show up to set without butterflies in my stomach again. And part of how I did that was I do plan. I do rigorously think through the characters' backstories and what they want, the visual language of the scene, the aesthetics of the whole film. I think about that all the time. But I also always wanna leave space for surprises now. I wanna show up and be nervous. Am I gonna be able to get everything I want? Because I'm reaching for my own cool stuff. Because my other collaborators will have other ideas. And to me, that's the, my, my new measure of success. If I'm nervous when I show up to set every day, then I'm doing something right. And so how was that for you then to go in with this mindset of like, I'm gonna let it go, especially if you want to make sure that every I is, is dotted and T's crossed? This, the way you solve the problem of, if you have a, such a strong vision of the film, but you want to have collaborate, you just need to pick your collaborators really well. Because for me, I loved going to set and, and realizing that I wasn't gonna be the only person to contribute ideas, because I so trusted the instincts of my actors, particularly my lead actor, Brian Silverman. I can't overstate how much I trust the instincts of my cinematographer, Julie Kirkwood, who's just a, just a visual and emotional genius. Uh, and so, yeah, I was very happy to open up my process, because what usually happened was people came up with great ideas, oftentimes that achieved the exact goal I had. Uh, for the film. And when they didn't, and it was better, I'm never gonna turn out a better idea. You know, that's, why would I, you know? And so, yeah, so I, I found that this movie is the closest I've come to having the movie I saw in my head be the movies on screen. But ironically, it's the one where I've been the most collaborative and invited the most participation. And that's a lesson that I will take with me for the rest of my life. And so, what was the nights and weekends process for shooting? How long did that last? We shot this movie over the course of four years. The plan was to shoot it over the course of about six to eight months. <laughs> but the idea was I was gonna get my favorite and dearest collaborators, many of whom you know, work big professional sort of jobs. Uh, but I wanted to be able to shoot without the pressure of like, okay, we can only do it in seven days because the only time anyone's free. Instead, we said, okay, let's buy the camera. We bought a DSLR. Um, let's embrace a method of shooting where when we just happen to be free, we go out and we shoot a piece of the movie. And in doing so, we will never be choosing the safe camera angle that captures all the actions so we can, get, we can get, at least get the editing room. No, there's no cost to us failing in a particular day. We're not in the middle of this intense, you know, compressed shoot. So we shot on nights and weekends. There were days in which we showed up to set at seven in the morning, shot one shot, everyone went off to their jobs. There were other time periods where for three days straight, you know, we shot scenes uh, because we all happened to have time free. And the real, there were two big benefits from that. One, like I said, just taking the pressure off of the system, which allowed us to be more experimental, more free. But also, I have never learned as much during the making of a film and still be able to apply it to the film. You know, every time you make a project, you learn something. But what was beautiful about shooting incrementally was I grew as a filmmaker and I could apply that to this film. And so this film got better because I was making the film that way. Four years. Do, do you mind if I ask the budget? We made, we got the film shot and in the can for about fifteen dollars or $16,000. And then we had about $15,000 in post uh, to sort of get it finished. So around $30,000. I, I, when I say that number though, I also like to say with a lot of favors. Um, you know, it was a SAG movie, so uh, we, we did, I did pay the actors through the SAG system. Most of my key crew worked for free or for very below their rate. Uh, and honestly, everyone was super generous with their time. 
in, a, in a way that is very gratifying to me, they, they just love the project. Uh, and I was allowing people to have more freedom and more input than they got in their normal industry uh, sort of job. And I think that's part of what inspired them to come work for me. The thing I love about that number, about the fact that we made it for $30,000 is like, I don't think it's ever easy to make a movie. Uh, and I think even the ability to muster $30,000, half of which I got through, through Kickstarter, uh, even the ability to do that is a privilege. You know, I don't think that means, I, I realize very well that that doesn't mean even that everyone can do that. But $30,000 is so much less than what a big movie costs in Hollywood. And I want that to be a message that we can make different sci-fi movies and different genre movies uh, that address more niche ideas or more quirky ideas uh, and, and they're more personal because not as much money is on the line. Do you think Hollywood movies are junk food or are they a necessary part of culture, media? I like a wide range of movies. Like I love big blockbuster films and I like obscure black and white documentaries. You know, I really like it, like it all. So for me, yeah, I'm not someone who I think um, wants to call any particular genre kind of movie as not being cinema or as, you know, being junk food. But what I am interested in is making sure that it's like a diverse palette on the, you know, a, a diverse feast. I, the only time I'm upset is when I feel like only one kind of movie is just dominating the entire conversation. It's all we can see, it's all we can talk about. Then I have misgivings, and I do feel that way a little bit about sci-fi. When I was a kid, I would have killed to have any sci-fi movie in a theater. And it's so funny to now like have inherited the earth. Like The biggest movies in the world are Star Wars and Star Trek and all the Marvel movies, comic books, sci-fi, and I love that on the one hand, but I also have a really strong feeling that those movies are surprisingly monolithic. They are spectacle action movies with a speculative element, and their main difference is how comedic they are. Uh, and I actually like a lot of them. I think J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movie is a brilliant movie. I think Thor Ragnarok is a very entertaining film. But I also want there to be more children of men. You know, like, uh, and so I think that my only push is, I don't want to push anybody out of the conversation. I just want there to be more people in the conversation. Do you feel that stuff like the Twilight Zone is still is still prevalent today in terms of sort of these raw stories with very few special effects, but the same general idea? There is a uh, movement of indie sci-fi, it predates my film for sure, that I think is out there. The question of how many people are finding it, I think is the second question, but I think if you look at uh, Shane Carruth and Gareth Edwards, like. Uh, and you know, and, and honestly, you know, a whole bunch of filmmakers working in Asia and Europe and in Africa, like you will see a, a huge movement of indie sci-fi. It's there. It's not that it doesn't exist. I think the challenge it faces is reaching an audience, and that's something I'd like to see more of: is having those films sort of you know be seen more. Do you think that indie filmmakers are afraid of sci-fi because they feel like they can't do it on this large scale? Indie filmmakers are for, are for sure, I think, afraid of sci-fi because I think there's still this dominant messaging that a VFX film must cost a million dollars. And I don't even mean that as an exaggeration. I think people see the stuff in my film and they, they think, like, did that cost a million dollars? And my message really is, no, there's been such a revolution in personal computing, in software, that uh, while it's not easy, it is very possible uh, to make visual effects films on indie film budgets. 
But I don't think, surprisingly, even though I think we are a decade into this movement, I still don't think enough independent filmmakers realize they can dream in this way. They can be creative in this way through genres like horror and sci-fi uh, and fantasy. It can happen. Uh, I think you have to have the idea for it. And then if you have the idea, there are a lot of ways to accomplish that idea now. And then that being said, with your film, After We Leave, you wanted to make sure that the sci-fi was in the background and that the, the story, the emotion of the character was in the beginning. And that was my choice. Like Part of my artistic agenda was to say, I think it's interesting to focus on character and conflict and the big sort of questions through a future lens. But I think what's great about this revolution in, in VFX and in digital you know, cameras and all that sort of stuff is that another filmmaker might come along and be like, you know what, I want to make an in-your-face VFX spectacle, that even that can happen now, and I wish more people would do that. Particularly, I'm excited about women filmmakers and people of color filmmakers who are just you know, deciding, yeah, I can do this. I can tell a sci-fi story or a fantasy story. Uh, I can't get enough of that. Did you write differently knowing that you would be using visual effects? Is there a different sort of language you're using depending on the genre of a film you're making? One of my goals for this project was to not uh, do anything because of the visual effects, to not alter the process because of that. And part of the workflow that my brother and I developed when we were, knew we were gonna do this sci-fi movie was from the writing phase and the shooting phase, I wanted to treat it like it was a totally realist movie uh, and make it in the way that I would make it if it was just a normal drama, present day set. Uh, and the reason I could do that is just because of the advances in visual effects technology. The fact that we don't have to lock off the camera anymore, that we don't need millions of dollars to do each shot, that you know, the fact that we can, you can pre-visualize even as an indie filmmaker. So no, I approached the movie, uh, I didn't think about the visual effects at all uh, in the first draft. In the second draft, for sure I went through and there were a few moments where I thought, that's probably too expensive for me to do or too time consuming, but that was more, but you do that in any screenplay even when it's not visual effects. Oh, I just wrote a set piece in Dodger Stadium. Eh, if it's a little budget film, I probably should take that out. So I did some of that, but no, actually one of my like big, big goals was to not treat this in the way that Hollywood treats a visual effects project, which I think sometimes makes it somehow different. I wanted to just write a drama, shoot it like I was shooting a drama, uh, and have the future be in it. And thankfully, my brother and I sort of worked out a system that allowed that to happen. Yeah, I heard you say in another interview with, uh, by the way, she was a great interviewer. She talked about, you said uh, moral, moral dilemma in the beginning or in the forefront and visual effects in the background. We had a mantra on set, which was, with very few exceptions, but our mantra was, if the first thing the audience is looking at is a visual effect, we're doing something wrong. That I really wanted the character and the story and yes, Jack's moral dilemma, that's what I should be looking at. And if, because it's a sci-fi movie, we do need to evoke a future Los Angeles and it's about you know, interstellar migration, so we do need rockets that go there. Those will all be there, but the movie is not sort of always focused on that. And to, I think to go one step further, I was really trying to make a movie that felt like it was shot in the time period. Uh, I often sort of say that if you watch a movie from like the 1950s, very rarely is the camera person when the, just a normal 40s or 50s car goes by, is there a shot that's like, whoa, look at that car, because it's normal, it's a fact of life. But for some reason in our current like blockbuster vernacular, the camera is almost always in awe. I think it's kind of just trying to show like, look at that, look at that. But instead I wanted, you know, even in my movie when the rockets launch, there's no huge punch in on the rockets, a tight close up. There's no amazing kinetic shot. 
it's just the camera pans slightly and then just comes back. Because my mind was, I want a future camera operator to be operating that camera and think, yeah, rockets, okay, back to this. You know, like, I wanted it to feel like that, that it was made in the time period. Because again, my goal was not to have this VFX spectacle where everyone just sort of fetishized the VFX. I want to tell a story in the future, but it's the story, not the future, that was sort of, you know, most important. What do you see that your students wanting to tell? Like, what really moves them? My students are very interested in seeing themselves reflected on screen. Uh, and that means, I think, some of the obvious topics we think about today. I do think it means that they want to see more women characters on screen, more complex women. They want to see uh, you know, underrepresented groups on screen, different identities. But also, I think they just want to see their mindset and their feelings. I think that they feel like uh, there is a dominant representation of life that doesn't actually sync up with their own experience, that it's a little bit out of date, that you know, people 10, 20, 30 years older than them are primarily telling stories older than them. And so their real desire seems to be to see a reflection of their lived experience on screen. I mean, I think back to, this is a John Hughes film, Pretty in Pink, yeah. you know? And even though I liked the film, I didn't see myself represented there. Yes. Did, did you feel that growing up? I, I felt that in many ways. Like, for sure, as a kid growing up who's half South Asian, half white, I didn't see anybody on screen who looked like me. Uh, and I used look like me as sort of a stand-in for a broad set of concerns, like who came from a family like mine, who, who you know, thought in a way like I did, who had experiences in life the way I did. That was certainly just really lacking from movies when I was growing up. Uh, but secondly, honestly, like, I was also just, you know, I didn't feel like I, I fit in in so many ways. And I watched high school movies that had tropes that just didn't match up with my life. I watched action movies where the stakes just didn't seem to match up with my life. You know, and so, uh, yeah, there was a lot lacking. One of the things that I think is also kind of magical is how many movies really resonated with me. You know, one of the nice things about being from a multicultural background is I think I, in some ways, can sometimes have it both ways. I, it was probably easier for me than other people uh, to just identify with lots of different kinds of protagonists and lots of different kinds of stories because of how many of things I was being exposed to just in my life in general. So was there one character that, even though maybe different life circumstances, but you just felt really just uh, resonated with you? You felt a kinship? Hmm, that's a very good question. I like that one. Let me think about it for a second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I think that there, when I, I, I really remember watching um, Star Wars and realizing Luke Skywalker, he's, he's basically a kid like me, you know, like, like he's older than me when I, you know, uh, when I was watching the movie. But like, I do remember thinking like, it's so interesting that the hero of this movie is not a badass, you know, like he's actually just like learning about the world. And I think that's one of the things I think is like under sort of realized about that movie that, I mean, Han Solo is an amazing character. He's awesome. He's not the main character of that movie, though, you know? The main character is, a, a, you know, a character who, most of the film, is just trying to catch up with what's going on in the world and not realizing the role he plays in it. And I like that a lot. In the four years you were making After We Leave, how are you balancing you, your professor at Occidental College here in Los Angeles, or Eagle Rock, and you have a family, you have children? How are you balancing all that? It's a lot. The truth is, I think that that balance is never perfect. Uh, I often joke that what I think doesn't get talked about enough uh, is 
that the stage of life, at least that I'm in right now, is I don't know that I do anything as well as I wish that I could, but I'm just trying to get all of it to at least be pretty good. Uh, being a dad, being a professor, being a husband, being a filmmaker, uh, they all have their demands. Every one of them is awesome. I wouldn't give up any of them. Uh, but no, for sure, making this movie is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Uh, and I don't say that actually looking for pity, but more like I think there just should be a more candid acknowledgement of how hard it is to balance those things. Uh, you know, for part of this movie, I was like, I was a part-time professor, part-time stay-at-home dad, and trying to make a feature. And then, um, you know, now I'm a full professor, at, a full-time professor at Occidental, and uh, you know, I have two kids now instead of one when I started. Um, and for sure, yeah, like that balance is difficult in so many ways in terms of just time. When can you get free to do it? Uh, in terms of just resources, uh, you know, those other things, there's just spending money and, 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 and that sort of stuff. And then more generally, the, the hardest one I find is the shift in mindset. That if I were to really encapsulate the phase of life I'm in right now, it's having to shift gears and sort of take off different hats and put different hats on with no real transition point. So to go from dad to professor to filmmaker to dad to, you know, like, like around that uh, there's no mental space to sort of flip over. And I've just accepted, I think that's just where, it, where I am right now. Uh, and I think there's this image of like filmmaking that is almost like it's divorced from the rest of life. But again, you know, I think that this is the reality of independent cinema. And every filmmaker I know knows this. I, I actually think we should talk about it more, which is to say, if you are feeling like, uh, man, it's really hard to like, you know, pack that lunch for the kid <laughs> and then like go to your job, in my case, like teach this lesson correctly and then make it to set on time and shoot this shot, having remembered everything you needed and being in a state of mind to be creative, if you're like, that's difficult, I wanna say like, yeah, it is difficult. And I don't know who we're kidding if we're saying it's not. Uh, and, and, and to me, like, and that's fine. Like, I think that like that struggle is a reality. And so I'm just trying to maximize it and optimize it, but I don't think it's gonna go away. <laughs> Yeah, I see too much of this mindset of like, I got this and I, I can totally, you know, I, nah, this doesn't, you know, and I wish sometimes people were more transparent with, yeah. no, this is really tough. And yeah, I don't know if I do have it, but I'm still going to show up. You know? And I think it's important to acknowledge that again, because I think uh, it, it, it's an, the amount of time you can devote to filmmaking, I do think becomes a representation of an amount of privilege that you have. And I think it is important for us to recognize, by the way, that it is actually harder for different people to get that half a day to even shoot a scene that I'm talking, you know, like I'm talking about, or to get an hour to do that. And that big societal things like that are part of the reason for the representation gap in behind the camera and in front of the camera. And that, that's why it's hard to address these things. You know, that it can't just be, oh, we'll open up our application process or we'll open up our, you know, how receptive we are to other ideas. That's awesome. But you can have removed a lot of barriers to entry and still larger sort of structural problems in like society can be altering who even tries to step through those doors. That's a really good point. I think that relates to interning as well. Right. Even though, you know, there's a lot of backlash about interning. The, the entire thing. industry is like, I think, built on this idea of, well, we have all these dreamers and the ones that are the most passionate, they'll come and put in the time. And I have to be honest, like again, I don't say this to have any judgment against any individual who says that, but I think it's reflective of a structural bias. That if you have a system where the measure of like whether someone is deserving is they prove it to you by how much time they put in, that is equivalent to saying your system is structurally biased against people who, who for whom time is a greater resource, a harder to find resource. And that's gonna be 
women, people of color, people of lower income. Uh, and so we have to be careful about, I think it's always important to judge passion and to see who's serious about what they want to do. But measuring that through certain metrics that we've used in the past, I do think contributes to the homogeneity of the industry. Right. Single moms, single dads. Exactly. And, and even if they do have time, are they going to be so tired exactly. that they can't finish it? You know, I think that's one thing that you don't think about when you're younger is, oh, yeah, I can totally do this and yes. I can balance all this stuff. You don't realize how tired you're going to be. Mm -hmm. and, and you can't think clearly. You know, And I think that's, um, yeah, anyway, that's another video. So. What are some of your cardinal rules of filmmaking that you actually ended up breaking? while on set. So you knew, you had certain things, you, like I think you said, don't don't write a scene for something that you can't budget, to some huge you know, uh, subway station or whatever that you can't film in. I definitely believe that you should be practical with what you can actually achieve. And I thought I was being careful, for example, about only picking locations that I knew I could get. Uh, but for sure, towards the end of the shooting, I had this one scene that I could never take off my checklist to do, which was I had written a scene that takes place in this bureaucratic visa office, a sort of DMV for the future. And I wrote this scene and I just, every time I thought about, oh, cheating it or moving it to a different kind of location or being more modest, I just got sad. But then to actually find a place that would be full of enough people and look like an institutional setting was super difficult. And I kept thinking to myself, like, why did I get myself into this dilemma? And sure enough, that was the last scene we shot. We just like, right up to the end, I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And honestly, when the movie was done, we shot half that scene in a way that, I mean, I'm glad it worked out, but it was risky. We walked into a DMV, sat down and shot. Um, and we get kicked out in about 15 minutes, but that 15 <laughs> minutes, is in, it's in the movie. Um, and then the second half of it, we did sort of build something uh, sort of uh, in a sort of soundstage way, very cheaply. But yeah, I definitely broke the rule of, you know, think about your locations. But I'm glad that I did, because I think that rule of like being modest about locations leads to, honestly, films that are like not as interesting as they should be. I get why the advice often is, oh, make a contained feature, a one-room feature, or a one-place feature, and that is a practical bit of advice, but I don't know, like it, it leads to a certain kind of storytelling. And so I was very interested in being like, I actually think I can make a journey across Los Angeles as a movie in all these different locations and still keep it cheaply. Uh, but yeah, that one, that DMV at the end kind of got me. So that was one rule that I broke. Uh, the other rule that I, that I think that I, I, I sometimes would break is even as much as I was embracing the idea of always searching out the most interesting camera angle and the, you know, like the most quirky performance moment, there were certainly times where I was tired, the sun was going down, and I could feel that voice being like, just make a safe choice and be done. Just make a safe choice and get out of here on time. And I'm sure that there are times that I did that a little bit. You know? And I think my aspiration every film out is to do that less and less. Directing for visual effects, how is that different from directing, let's just say, um, coming-of-age drama? For me, my goal was to have the on-set directing process be no different when it comes to visual effects than my normal process. For me, the change is all in pre-production. Uh, I wanted to be able to show up on set and not have to change. I didn't want to have to block the actors any more than I normally would be inclined to. I didn't want to have to be limited to my camera angles any more than I would normally be. And so the solution to that was sitting down with my brother, uh, who's a visual effects artist, and asking him, okay, what's possible and what's not within those constraints? Tell me all the things we can do that don't require me to lock off the camera, have the actors hit precise blocking marks, um, or limit my frame. And once I knew the things I could do, those are the things I put in the movie. Uh, because I didn't want to be in a situation where I had to like bend the movie to that process on set. Because again, like, 
I feel like the point of a movie is the story and the characters, and that's what the process should be about. In pre-production, there's a lot more pre-visualization though, for sure. Uh, there is a version of this movie which is just me and my DP, Julie Kirkwood, shooting each other on our iPhones, doing all the shots, and then showing it to my brother and asking him, oh, can you composite this in here? Will you be able to get this to work out over here? Uh, we could probably cut together a shot-by-shot -shot remake of the movie, which is just starring me or Julie <laughs> on little iPhone footage. Uh, but that was our process for both, that was our creative process for developing a visual language, but also for planning the visual effects. I could just shoot it on my phone, go to my brother, if we do this, can you put this in the background? Can this be in the foreground? We'll be able to rotoscope that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he would say yes or no, and then that would influence what I would then try to do on set. What was the biggest visual effect you used? What scene was that? Uh, the two biggest ones, are the, the second or third shot in the movie is uh, rockets launching, sort of, and we see them sort of in the distance, but just getting, doing a shot that involved, you know, photorealistic rockets, you know, rising over the horizon was uh, just very time consuming, but all in post. Shooting it was very, very easy. Uh, on set, ironically, the thing we spent the longest time doing was a very simple shot of just someone using a touch screen. Um, but making sure that with reflections and, uh, and lighting that we were going to be able to successfully, you know, create a space between, you know, there's a there's touch screen and there's a hand, there's a space in between we need to lay in the visual effects. Just working that out was the hardest shot, even though it's one of the most simple seeming shots in the movie. Um, but getting that right was, was a challenge for sure. And how did you do that? Like, what were some of the in the end? You know, we tried a lot of different ways. Like, I, I was I was convinced it was going to be the one green screen shot in the movie. Even we had skewed all green screens just in favor of other forms of working. Uh, but in the end, we I just we just frame by frame rotoscoped it, um, and uh, and and the result was great, and it worked out just fine. Uh, but it was more like I was almost nervous to leave it to that, and so I spent time trying to shoot alternates. But in the end, I, my brother was right. I should have just stuck with the process he recommended, which would have actually been not doing anything out of ordinary. Just have the actor do the gestures that I'd planned out, which we had mapped out, and we would have been done in half the time. But I was just nervous, and so we tried to do a green screen version. <laughs> Hate it when the brother's right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so off screen, I asked, will you be working on a new movie? And I think you said absolutely yes. Do you plan to have it be a four-year process? Knowing that you have this new motto of sort of like, we're gonna just be free, and we're gonna go in, I'm not gonna overplan it. Uh, I very much hope to continue the process I started with After We Leave on my next movie. I do hope to do it quicker than that, though. Uh, I don't want to uh, go out with a low budget and try to emulate the classic, like, oh, we're going to shoot an indie feature in 12 days. I still don't believe in that. I still think that leads to making safe choices that aren't as interesting creatively and putting too much pressure on each moment. Uh, but I would like to shoot it in quicker than four years. Uh, and I think really the solution for that is, I, I think having done it once, I've learned a lot about what moments uh, uh, that allow for creativity are really worth it and what were just sort of experiments even in process. So my hope is, yeah, I think that if I go out and make another low budget feature, I'd, I'd like to do it in this period of a couple of months um, in terms of the shooting. And then in post, it really would depend on whether or not it's a visual effect movie or not. Um, but yeah, I think that there is still a middle ground between the classic like sort of compressed schedule of an indie shoot and the four years of nights and weekends that I took to make this movie. I'm hoping there's some middle ground in the two to three month range. Are you already writing the script? I have a couple of scripts that I'm writing, um, and they're of different budget levels. You know, one of the goals of After We Leave was to hope that having made this one movie, which I think visually looks more expensive than it cost, that that will help me uh, get funding for a larger project. But I'm also trying to write just another complete micro budget project. Again, like my goal is like, I don't want to go back to the place where I'm just waiting for other people to let me make a movie. Uh, and I'm just going to keep making films.
Where do you balance your time writing? I know you said pages are not like yeah. your main objective, but. Uh, I find it challenging to, to write regularly. I think writing regularly is super important, but my life is just not built that way. So for me, I try to just schedule out at least once a week where I just sit down and just brainstorm. And, and, and again, focusing much more on just like the ideas, like just thinking like, is this the actual right idea for the story? Is this the right story to tell based on that idea? Uh, and when I really answer those questions, then I can set aside a block of time, a couple of days, to just really go to town and write pages. I find the pages come really quickly if the ideas are right. So for me, it's just about creating that mental space of an hour where my phone's off and I don't have, you know, I don't have a meeting with a, a student or a professor. I don't have to pick up my kids from school yet. Like some period of time where it's like, all right, my brain can just free associate. Trying to build that time in, I think, is the most important time. And then it's very easy for me to schedule writing pages. I can write pages in like 15 minutes, you know, pieces if I know what I'm supposed to be writing. Will it be another sci-fi with like a major moral dilemma? It would, I, I would be surprised if my next movie is not a genre movie. Um, the couple of ideas that I'm kicking around now are all genre films, they're not all sci-fi, but I really, I love like what genre allows you to do. I think it leads to so much like visual freedom. You can do so many interesting aesthetic things in fantasy and horror and sci-fi. Uh, and I think it's also a really nice way to address big issues, for sure. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I'm, my ideas really, at their core, start from just some sort of emotional image or idea that grabs me, and they kind of build out from that. Through observation, just being out? Yeah, I think they come from observation and then reflection. You know, like seeing something in the world and thinking about how it makes me feel. And then oftentimes hypothesizing from that or extrapolating from that into a sort of genre story. What's the biggest mistake a filmmaker can make? The biggest mistake is a very understandable mistake that a filmmaker can make, which is, I think, to, to, to make a film uh, that where you're not saying anything. And when I say say something, I don't actually think it has to be profound or that it has to be serious. But I think that it's... The, the barrier to entry of just making an image on screen has lowered, right, with digital cameras. And so you can create imagery. Uh, and I think a mistake that a lot of us can make is it's, it's easier to do that, and, but is there any reason for us to do that, to make the thing? So like my like, real threshold is, I, I think at this point, especially I think because independent cinema is not a high-paying career, I only want to make movies that wouldn't exist if I wasn't here in the world. In other words, what is the film that only I would make? I think as long as I'm doing that, I've cleared the initial sort of, uh, you know, like uh, potential mistakes a filmmaker can make. Uh, and so that's something I tell my students, something I tell other filmmakers. And I don't mean to say that you have to make a wholly original film, but you know, what is something that comes from you? It doesn't have to be biographical. It doesn't have to be specifically about, you know, your exact identity, but just your point of view, your take, your feeling. As long as you're putting that into a movie, I think that's a reason to make a film. And how does a filmmaker do it without beating the audience over the head with a message? Because you know how so many, oh, a message, yeah, we, we're going to stay away from that. Distributors don't want that because it's too biased. I think if, if, the, if your primary front and center goal for making a movie is a message, uh, a movie may not be the right format. Um, I always tell people, like, a really great infographic is a pretty great way to get out a message. Uh, a really great documentary sometimes is a way to get out a message. Uh, a, you know, 2,000 word medium post might be a great way to get out a message. For me, with film, I do think that film absolutely engages with the world and can have messages in it. 
But at least for me, like I, I can't start from that point. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't get how to make a movie that's like good and interesting to watch moment to moment if the message is the only reason you're making it. Yeah, I always love these people with all the bumper stickers on the back of their car. And I'm always like, I wanna read yeah. them all. I yeah. wanna know, there's like messages in here, you know, mm -hmm. and there's like a, a, a general like bias to what they're driving yeah. around trying to say. And I, I find it very interesting and, and you know, not just the, you know, my dog is smarter than your honors dude, <laughs> but, but ones where there's like, wow, I didn't, yeah, I've never seen that one before. And the one, my favorite one was, before you change the system, you have to become part of the system. That mm. was my favorite one that I saw. And then I realized like, wow, that's a life They're view. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a world that's view. Really, yeah. yeah, that's so. <laughs> just a side note there, but what's been the hardest part of filmmaking for you to learn? The hardest part has been for me to learn to to give up some of my moment to moment control, and to realize that in doing that, I actually gain artistic control. I came to filmmaking, I think, from the visual side, and I thought that when I started filmmaking, editing would be my favorite part of the process, where it's just me and I can make every decision. And for a while it was, and now my favorite part is being on set with an amazing cinematographer, with amazing actors, uh, and being open to what that process yields. And it's been a hard journey because it felt like I was giving up directorial vision at first. Because frankly, I think I had a misunderstanding of what like directorial vision is. I think I thought it was, oh, I'm gonna micromanage every single detail. Uh, and what I've really come to realize is that if I know very clearly what I want, what I want the audience to feel, what the point of the movie is, if I know that and I can communicate it, then I can actually delegate a surprising amount of work and I will literally get that thing I wanted uh, because people who know the point and know the goal but then have space to sort of do their own work, they produce excellent work. And it, if you communicate well, it is work entirely in sync with what you wanted. And then there's the flip side of someone who's just too loose with everything. And, and I've seen a lot of really brilliant creative people like that, but they never rein themselves in and then they never finish things. Mm -hmm. So how is it for you to, to know that you have the opposite problem and just see, you know, are you sort of in awe sometimes of some of these messy creative folks? Or does, I mean, do, do you sort of see the, pole, you know how they say every polar opposite is actually, there's like a lot of similarities here? I mean, I, I love sort of seeing other filmmakers process for making stuff. And then one of the ironies of being a director is you spend very little time getting to see other people direct. You know, I'm so envious of actors sometimes who get to go from project to project and just see all these different approaches. Yeah, I feel like I've learned from so many different kinds of directors. From the ones that are just completely no plan, no stuff, I've learned cautionary tales, but honestly, in there a little bit of like, well, there's something that comes out of that freedom. And for sure, even from the overprescribed, the Hitchcockian storyboard everything, I've learned something too. Uh, all of it to me seems like there are lessons, good and bad in there. Uh, and I think I'm always sort of, you know, adjusting as I go. Do you see your students being planners or, or are they more like, hey man, let's just get a camera and shoot. We'll figure the story out when we're there. In general, I think that uh, the students that I interact with, um, through no fault of their own, I think underestimate uh, the level of planning required to use even our seemingly accessible digital cameras. You know, we, they're growing up in an era where they can take their phone out and press record and get video seamlessly without any real thought, right? I don't mean like intention, but just like it's just easy to do. And so I think they go through a learning curve that's perfectly understandable 
of realizing that even with a DSLR, which is a relatively easy to operate piece of machinery, there are a lot of things you have to pay attention to to get it to come out right. Uh, and you know, just literally like you know, what's the f-stop and the expo and the you know f-stop and exposure and the ISO and the resolution and uh, that making them go through those steps so that the images are what they want uh, is one of the big things that, that I sort of focus on. Do you think having access to too much information hurts people? Because you know, just think about Gen Xers. We I craved all that, and there wasn't really a place except for going like to the library and looking on microfiche yeah. for something. But I wonder if it almost hurts people nowadays because there's just an overabundance of it. Yeah, it's an interesting question to ask. Like, how does just the amount of uh, information and uh, and perspectives and advice and technology that we that are flowing into us, how does that affect the creative process? Because uh, in some ways, I think of the creative process as being a very solitary, quiet thing for me, that I'm at my most creative when I built a bubble, even if it's for a few minutes, to just think in isolation. That being said, I do think all that stuff is fuel for the process. And yeah, I'm kind of excited. You know, one of the things when I first fell in love with Instagram, it was just the ability to see photos of people's lives all over the world. And undoubtedly, that influenced me as an artist. You know, and, and, and so as much as like there are times in which I feel like, oh my gosh, like the news and social media and you know, everything else overwhelms and is like a, a sort of a certain amount of like background noise that is distracting, I also have to believe that it is, um, and I do believe, that is also enriching my life experience. And I think anything that enriches my life experience uh, sort of has a result creatively. So, so with, with, let's say, Gen Y or, or Gen Z, just having access to so much information, being able to just ask a question and get so many different answers back, that you feel that's, that's helpful? Or, or does it almost harm the creative process because now there's too much agenda? There's too, there's too many voices, you know, answering. I, I realize this is a really vague no. question, but. I'm actually really excited to see what kind of filmmakers like the, the next generation, what, the, what they're gonna do because of, yeah, how they're growing up. Because they're growing up, first of all, you know, the thing they watch more than anything is long form serialized content. How is that going to impact the kind of stories they choose to tell? I fell in movies through movies. You know, like my favorite things when I was growing up were 90 minutes to two hours. Uh, invariably, when I asked them, many of them, their favorite thing is a television show or a streaming show. Or if it is movies, it'll be something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is also a form of serialized storytelling. So I'm super excited to see how does that impact them. I am super excited to also see what do they choose, if they choose to make movies and other kinds of you know, audiovisual content, what do they do given that they grew up with so many other things to do in their lives, you know, like social media and video games and interactive, like how will that influence the few of them who choose to do what we might think of as filmmaking in the future. I'm just really excited about it. Like, I just love the idea of contemplating how each generation of artists is undoubtedly shaped by the time they grew up in, right? And yeah, I don't have a lot of pessimism or a lot of complaints. Like, I'm just more just excited to see what happens. It's interesting because it's Halloween time as we shoot this yeah. interview and going to all these different um, Halloween stores, just how many, you know, Stranger Things and oh all God. these, these things costumes sure. yeah. and, and, and cool like Halloween gadgets are inspired by some of these shows. And, I guess that same thing was around. I know E.T. Sure. There was a lot of, you know, I had yeah. one little Burger King Elliot doll and different so things. But, <laughs> um, but, but it just seems like now it's, it's even more, like it's, there's a thirst for it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the, the like a, a lot of sort of 
people growing up today, like they are growing up in the in the era of our media is not just on screen, right? It is expanding out to, you know, there's a Star Wars part of Disneyland and there are Halloween costumes for Stranger Things and there are novelizations and podcasts and, you know, branded content. Uh, and I think that you could obviously look at that in a cynical way or a commercial way, but I think what's exciting about it is it's a generation of artists who are growing up with the stories they love, they can engage with in so many different ways. You know, for me, I was just starved for content, like just waiting for like the next Star Trek movie to come out, you know, like, and the fact that they have this ongoing relationship with the things they love, I'm, I wish I knew what it was like to grow up like that. I'm sure that will create differences, uh, but it doesn't seem like a pro or con, it just seems like just a really interesting difference and I'm curious to see what happens because of it. What's the reality of film distribution for independent filmmakers? I think film distribution is the part of the equation that has been the least revolutionized uh, to the benefit of filmmakers. There's a lot of talk about, we, we think we know, in, we know inherently like digital cameras changed the game. They made it easier to shoot something. Digital editing make it e made it easier to do post. And of course, theoretically, we have these platforms, you know, YouTube being the biggest example, that theoretically reach everyone. But the real truth is like to, that m so much content put on those platforms, while theoretically accessible to billions of people, is not actually watched. Uh, and, and I think that like, that's actually one of the sort of like uh, facts that is, I think, we're not being honest enough about. And there are lots of reasons that content doesn't find an audience. Sometimes it's quality, but honestly, I think part of it is that we still, despite like the rosy rhetoric, I think we're still not good enough at connecting the particular audience, no matter how small, but a distributed audience, with content they would like. I think it's very hard to do that because Despite all the benefits of like egalitarianism in, in, in filmmaking, the downside is there's just so much stuff that it's hard to find stuff that you like. There, I mean, I, I'm sort of convinced that out there right now, there are films that could be in my top 25 films of all time that I don't even know exist. And that sort of pains me, you know, like to think like that's probably true. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so I think that as I, you know, this is my first feature that I've made, and having made a feature and now contemplated oh yeah, I gotta put this out into the world. You know, I, you know, my film was just acquired. My assumption is it will end up on a major distribution platform. And there was a time in my life when I thought, if my film's on Amazon, I got it made. But what's so crazy is there's a world in which you can even be on Amazon and be on Netflix and still no one has seen your movie. You know, uh, because did it have a big enough, was it featured prominently on the main page? Was the thumbnail the right one? I still think we're trying to figure all of that out. Uh, and I do hope that like uh, people who are interested in the art of filmmaking uh, uh, are devoting time to thinking about how to solve these problems. For sure, there are people thinking about commerce that are trying to maximize revenue. But it would be great to have some of you know some people who are informed with algorithms and with you know uh, sort of user choice to think about how do we improve uh, the connection between filmmakers and their audience. Do you have any thoughts on expectations? once your film is out there. You, know, you waited all this yeah. time, and you know we always think one thing is going to look like this when it happens, and then it doesn't. And When I was in film school, one of my professors gave me this just really great piece of advice, and it was, he said, remember what your goal for the film was when you get all the way to the end and you see the response. And what he meant by that was, I think, uh, you know, if you set out to make a comedy, and you get to the end of the road, and people laugh, like, it's so clear that you achieve what you wanted to achieve. Uh, he was speaking to me though because I was making unsettling dramas. 
And he was like, what you want to happen is the film screens and everyone just uproariously shouts and screams and claps. But if the, if the lights come up and everyone is sitting in stunned silence, remember that that's your success. <laughs> um, and what I took from that was the idea of like to really think about, okay, yeah, what are my expectations that are appropriate for the movie, separate from just our general desire that we think we all wish everything we did would be just greeted by unanimous applause. Uh, but also I think there's an expectation in terms of like the, the, the total reach of the movie. Like, I, uh, I think if you are making a movie solely to get a response from the audience, uh, these days there's just so much out there that you're just almost 100% guaranteed to be disappointed because there's just, everyone's attention is so fragmented. I made my movie hoping that some people would watch it and that its artistic point of view would resonate with them and it would evoke emotions in them and put thought and make them think about certain things. And so what I sort of focus on is uh, trying to do the best I can to reach those people. And after that, if they like it, if they don't like it, if it does move them, I'm interested of course in that result, but it isn't my primary sort of expectation for the project. I think mostly I, I made a form of self-expression. I tried to make it the best I could and I'm trying very hard to get it out to be possible to be seen. And then after that, I think I actually don't have a lot of expectations. And do you think you, do you pass that on to your students knowing that you know you had a professor tell you that? And I do, I actually use that anecdote every time. I tell my students like, remember what success will look like for your film. You know, and, and really, because we're all biased by the end. I always say like, literally write down on a piece of paper before you even shoot the film. What would success look like for this film? You know, if I'm making an a, a, a ambiguous, difficult, edgy movie, if half the audience is mad at me, that might be what I intended to do. Now it might feel bad when you get there, but just to remind yourself that's what you set out to do. You know, um, So I actually literally tell them that. Um, but I also tell them like, I, I actually think that thinking about overall audience response to the movie as a whole is very rarely creatively fruitful. I think thinking moment by moment is very important. Like I, I, tell my, I tell people all the time when you're directing, just ask yourself over and over again, what do I want the audience to know and feel at this exact moment? And then make your camera choices about that, make your acting choices, your sound choices. What do I need the audience to know and to feel? But that's less about hoping for a response and more being like, what do I wanna tell them or make them think about? And that's on a micro level, that's super important. But on a big level, I tell them all the time, like you can't be focused on like what the overall reception is going to be. It's hard to predict, um, and uh, and I don't think it's the reason to make a movie. What's the biggest obstacle you faced, and what was your takeaway from it? Despite the fact that I thought that I had designed a process that would allow me to escape some of the pressures of, uh, of, of filmmaking in terms of like being more open to improv improvising or chasing down a crazy idea. I thought that I built this perfect system where I would never worry about time, I'd never worry about money. The truth is even making a movie for as little money as we did and even making it in a way that was very open to like not having time pressure, there were still times where I felt that. You know, I still felt the pressure of it's just hard to make a movie and there's so many moving parts and invariably things go wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that I, I, just, I, I just acutely felt that even when I was constantly trying to escape it, it's a hard process to get right. Um, and it's a hard process to sort of be artistically open and creative during the entire time. And then does that go back to sort of that same mantra of just we're just going to show up and shoot and we're just going to hold loosely to some of the stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, um, I mean, I, I think I was always very clear on like the overall point of the movie, the overall arc of the movie. But it, I did, it did tell, I had to psych myself up sometimes to once again jump off the cliff, you know, to say, okay, yesterday didn't go great. 
like we tried to improvise something or I had a great camera idea that just flopped, you know? Um, and to remember like that's part of the plan and to be as bold today as I was yesterday. To sort of try to erase the memory of the previous day's failure. Um, and, 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 and also when I had a success to really hold on to that success, be like, see, that's why it's worth being a little crazy sometimes. Like that was a moment I never would have gotten. Uh, I think just keeping that mental sort of like game, like I'm always gonna take risks. Embrace the butterflies in your stomach. Just keep doing that. When you were in film school, what were some of the things the teachers did that you said, you know what, this really works for me, and if I ever become a teacher, I wanna emulate that, and then on the reverse, that it sort of shuts you down? One of the most important things that happened to me in film school was I had a professor uh, who introduced me to the idea that art could be about process, not result. Uh, and he showed a series of experimental films and honestly even narrative films that were built around a way of working or an approach or a system and the idea that you could do that and then be open to the result. And I don't make films that are as experimental as that, but that overall idea, it just changed my entire way of thinking. And I'm so grateful that someone introduced me to that idea. You know, we, we live in a media environment where I think we're very result-oriented. You know, how, did, how much money did the film make? Who, what do people think of it? What were the reviews? Um, that kind of stuff. And as an artist, I really realized I have to be happy with the process too um, and, to and have a journey in the process. So that was super important. Um, and I definitely also learned that I had, I had professors who were super interested in engaging what was new and risky and exciting. I did also encounter, though, uh, a certain sort of skepticism towards new technology. And I actually really promised myself that I wasn't going to be someone who, when the new thing came along, I would grumble about it and ignore it. Uh, I, I remember some, you know, a minority of them, but a few professors sort of like really being against digital cameras, for example. They just didn't like them. And they weren't that great at the time. But it was just so clear to me they would obviously get better. You know, and here we are years later, and I love film, but we have great digital cameras too. Uh, and so I actually had that experience literally happen to the professor. Uh, several years ago, uh, I got access to an Oculus Rift developer kit, put on the headset, and uh, my instant reaction was like, ugh. Like, I don't like this. Every tool of cinema has gone to me. I don't have a frame. I don't have editing. You know, I don't have lighting that much. And I was like, ugh, I don't want to do anything to do with that. And thankfully, in that moment, I was like, wait, wait, you're being that old grumpy professor. Don't do that. <laughs> and so instead, I threw myself into it. And uh, I've done a lot of work in VR now. And honestly, I spent a long amount of time not liking it, but still doing it because I was just convinced there's gotta be something to it. And at, now I'm at the point where, uh, as I've now fully understood it to be different from film, I do like some things about it. Uh, but for sure I had to overcome a lot of my like grumpy old dinosaur filmmaker um, sort of attitude to sort of see what, what was good about it. What about that your work is going to invoke either not, not dislike, but anger in some people. Like I'm thinking of Chris Burden. I don't know if you saw, yes. the doc, you know, he did the LACMA lights and yeah. he did a lot of experimental stuff yeah. that made people angry, you know, and, and he's not the only artist, but, and being okay with that. I like the idea of movies that provoke questions and provoke a response. Um, and I'm perfectly okay with people not liking the movies. You know, if someone, uh, yeah, just it isn't their cup of tea, if they have an objection to it, uh, I will say, like, I don't know that I'm in a place in my life where I want to make a movie that I think will be consciously hurtful to anyone. Um, and I do think about that for sure. Like, there's a line, I think, between uh, provoking deep questioning or challenging dominant ideas 
and then there's an, another level which is like, yeah, I, but what I don't want to do is be hateful or hurtful. Um, and I don't think that I am, but like, I, I do think about that. Uh, so I'm excited for people to debate the movies, and I'm excited for people to um, sort of engage with them. And I'm even okay with uh, people who are like, yeah, I didn't really like it. I think that that, to me, that doesn't impact my artistic choices. Um, and I like filmmakers who do that too. There are filmmakers who I respect whose movies I actually don't particularly like, you know, um, and, uh, and I'm glad they exist. I think for me, the only thing that I'm not interested in seeing is where I feel like we cross the line between, you know, uh, uh, expressing alternate ideas to like essentially being, uh, you know, hurtful. And now too, I mean, do you prepare your students for that? Because like, I'm gonna date myself again, Gen X, we didn't have, we had party lines. You could yep. call a party mm -hmm. line and talk to people. You didn't have social media where you could yeah. say, I hated this, I hate the yeah. filmmaker, you're awful. And now that's a very real part of our culture, even if it's just someone that just wants to invoke an emotion in the filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the social media environment is actually the hardest for those of us that didn't come of age in it. Like, you know, uh, I when I started a filmmaker, as a filmmaker, it was just beginning, right? The Silicon Valley explosion was just happening. And so for me, like, yeah, it is a little, I have to definitely sort of remind myself anytime I go on Twitter, there is a chance that someone is just gonna tell me they hate my movie, you know? It actually doesn't happen that often. It's maybe only one or two times. Um, but yeah, for sure you have to balance stuff emotionally when you hear that. But when I watch my students, I think the truth is, it's less that they're better at navigating that, but more that that's just a fact of life for them in all aspects of life. That like everything they, you know, that they do is in some ways always you know, uh, subject to a lot of different commentary or judgment or ideas. And so I think I don't see them as like particularly sort of thinking about that being unique to their filmmaking experience as it is just reflective of their life experience. Interesting. So maybe older people, myself, I think we're having a harder time. We're having a harder time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm the. <laughs> I feel that way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. What's been the easiest year for you as a filmmaker, and then what's been the hardest? Uh, the easiest year, I think, was in some ways like the most joyful year, was my first year at film school, which was a tremendous amount of work, but totally free of any concern. Like, I worked so hard to make movies and I probably, you know, stayed up later than I ever had and, uh, and in terms of labor, did way more unpaid labor than I'd ever done. Uh, but it was so easy because there was actually no real stakes to it. We were just all in film school. If we didn't want to, no one would even see the movies. And it was such a joy just to engage with like, yep, we're just thinking about movies. Uh, and the hardest, movie, the hardest year was the, the last year of making this movie where I was down to only the scenes that were difficult to shoot, um, where I you know, uh, was struggling to balance work and parenthood and, and, and other life stuff, and you know, where, quite honestly, like, there was a, a point at the end of the shooting where you know, I was a little fearful that I wasn't gonna finish it. You know? and, and, and to confront the idea that wow, I might have worked this long what if I just can't get over the edge? Like that sort of doubt combined with the stakes of as much as I had tried to not spend too much money, we had spent some money, you know, that was that I that, that I wanted to make sure I used, you know, appropriately. That was the hardest year. And once we finished uh, shooting and I got into post, then I relaxed because I knew, like, hey, if I got to post, even if it takes forever, I will have a movie because I understand how to edit a movie together. The shooting was the hardest part. It's the part I enjoy the most but for sure that last part of shooting was the hardest thing I've ever done.